Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price, I'm your host. And welcome, if you're listening on audio, you can check this out on YouTube as well. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can go check out any podcast affiliate and search The Sacred Speaks. Be sure to share and like and comment. And uh, while I may be slow to respond, I am trying to pump out as many episodes as possible and I'm reading a ton, as evidenced by the following interview. So I wanna get to a couple of housekeeping details and then we'll get on to uh, introduce you to today's participant and, uh, and then get started. Now, first of all, as always, uh, the episode of the podcast is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, a boutique integrative clinic that my wife and I started years ago. You can check us out at thecenterforhas.com. And uh, we're growing, so uh, we're, we're moving into a new space, and we're also hiring some clinicians. So if by chance you're watching this and you're a psychotherapist who's licensed in Texas or would like to be, give us a call. Look us up on thecenterforhas.com. The other piece is that, as always, I'd like to uh, tip the hat to Modern Nations at modernnationsmusic.com. They've supplied the music, the theme music for the podcast. If you hang out to the end of the episode, as always, the song selection clouds that you heard at the very beginning will be played. So go check that out. Also check out their website. Uh, then what else? Social media, go there. A lot going on, really. Uh, social media has been a little dormant just because I've had energies that are really put into what's going on with the uh, the practice. And of course, really reading and lining up a number of these interviews for the podcast and releasing a series that's uh, taking a number of years to create. So um, hang in there. Uh, the the You guys are great, but by the way, I'm enjoying all the comments on YouTube and um, there's, a, there's a good back and forth. So please feel free to comment, get on there and engage with each other. And I'll certainly drop in whenever I can. Uh, other than that, what else is there? Yes, yes. Check out The Sacred Speaks, of course, at thesacredspeaks.com. There's a page up there now that's a little hint at what the website will be, but the website should be up whenever it's up, uh, hopefully soon, and uh, check that out when you can. So today, I got to thank Jeff Kripal. I'll certainly thank him at the beginning of the episode. Uh, Dr. Sarah Costello and I really rapped about that for a little while. Um, this is the book in question. Um, Jeff said, you got to read this book. It's the Rutledge Companion to Ecstatic Experience in the Ancient World. And it is precisely what I've been looking for. So I'm, I'm really happy to meet you and connect with you, Sarah. Thank you for Dr. Costello. Thank you for doing what you're doing and putting this together for geeks like me. And um, let me just read you a couple of the chapters. There is, um, of course, Sarah's, Sarah Costello's work, Contextualizing the Study of Ecstatic Experience in Ancient Old World Societies. Not only ecstasy, pouring new concepts into old vessels, Etzel uh, Cardenia, and then a chapter I'm reading right now that's blowing my mind, From Shamans to Sorcerers, Empirical Models for Defining Ritual Practices and Ecstatic Experience in Ancient, Medieval, and Modern Societies by Michael Winkleman. Um, this goes on and on. Psychoactive Plants in the Ancient World, Ecstatic Speech in Ancient Mesopotamia, uh, Ecstatic Experience, the proto-theme of Near Eastern Glyphic Language Family. Holy shit, that's a long title. And um, which is great, by the way, uh, Dr. Stein, thank you for putting together this book. Um, uh, Dr. Foster, Psychedelic Art and Ecstatic Visions in the Aegean. Ghosts in and outside the machine, a phenomenology of intelligence, psychic possession, and prophetic ecstasy in ancient Mesopotamia uh, by John Z. Wee, Dr. Wee. Uh, let me just, I'm looking at the Mycenaeans and Ecstatic Ritual Experience by Dr. Lupak, Susan Lupak. Um, Writing for the Dead, Welcoming the Solar Eye Goddess and Ecstatic Expression in Egyptian Religion by Dr. Darnell, John Coleman Darnell, on and on. And um, 
and I'm going to be talking to a number of these folks. Uh, but in particular, it was great talking with Dr. Costello. She's she and um, uh, Dr. Stein and Dr. F- Dr. Foster edited this volume and put it together for us. Uh, Rutledge is putting out an extremely expensive book. Textbooks, I could go off on this, have have inflated their price so much. I'm sure they have some reason, hopefully, to do that, but it is not a cheap book. Um, but it's a, a valuable book. I've certainly got advantage because I'm going to do a podcast on as many participants or many contributors as I can. But I want to read you Sarah's uh, Sarah's bio, uh, a little bit from her CV, and then we'll get started. Um, Dr. Sarah Costello has taught art history and at UHCL, University of Houston, Clear Lake, since 2014. She teaches graduate and undergraduate courses in the humanities and the hi- in the history of ancient art. She was the recipient of the UH Provost's Teaching Excellence Award in 2012. Dr. Costello's research focuses on the visual culture of the early periods of ancient Near East. In her writing, she investigates the social contexts of vision, visual culture, especially how people store and communicate ideas and how imagery relates to religion. She's a project leader of a collaborative research initiative with Houston's Manil Collection. If you have not been to the Manil in Houston, it is one of the energetic centers of the world. I'm slightly kidding. And, um, and it, it's a fantastic place. The, the Manila is in Houston. If you're ever in Houston, definitely put the Manila on your list of places to go. Focused on the art of the ancient Mediterranean world, she's conducted field research in Cyprus, Turkey, Israel, and Greece, and in 2013 studied in Greece as a Fulbright Fellow in the summer session at the American School of Classical Studies. Basically, she's an all-around badass, and it was great to chat with her. Sarah, thank you so much. Um, and I just want to jump in. Um, I know I said I'd read her. Uh, yeah, I think you got it. That's the, yeah. Look up her stuff. I've got links to the book, uh, look below as always in the liner notes or the podcast notes, and, uh, you'll find links to a lot of this, uh, what we're talking about. Check out the podcast, uh, check out Dr. Costello's work and look forward to many more conversations on ecstasy and antiquity, um, art, psychedelics, religion, and, uh, and the like. So thanks for being here. Uh, for now, we'll leave it there and see you next time. Sarah Costello, I was just telling you how, uh, how excited I am to read this book. And I know I've, I've reached extreme geek, uh, level on my because uh, Jeff Kripal, I, I got to give credit where credits to Jeff Kripal. Jeff Kripal pointed me in your direction, and I've started reading the Rutledge Companion to Ecstatic Experience in the Ancient World, and the title and the table of contents are just fun to uh, connect with. You're, you, as, as anybody listening or watching, you'll know very soon. For those of you who've been following the podcast, why it's so cool for me to be having this conversation, because I think, Sarah, what your work is doing is really providing a new perspective and a new voice to this thread about um, religion and cult religions and mystery traditions and certainly psychedelics, but also alternate states of consciousness in general and healing and um, uh, soul work in all, all these different cultures. So I'm excited that you and I can connect in in your arena and how you reflect on these subjects. Uh, I've just been really looking forward to our conversation. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. And I also really appreciate Jeff Kripal putting us in touch. He's, <laughs> he's like, you know, the man behind the curtain. <laughs> yes. 
So yeah, he's he's been a really generous colleague. I'm grateful to him. I I think that's a a, a universal of his. You know, I think he's yeah generous of spirit. And mm-hmm. for anybody listening and watching, check out. I've interviewed him on this podcast three times, and I I think I can't wait for the next time because it's always a new opening. But he. he this arena is something that the paranormal and religion and, and you know alternate states, ecstatic states, they, they all the, all these disciplines come together in, in really nice ways. And I, I think just to let's let's tee people up a bit. Uh, first, I'd love for you to be able to talk about who you are and what you do. And uh, and then as we as we talked before, I really want to talk about your process related to, how you come to uh, the conclusions that you do as an art historian? Uh, is, is you technically art historian, anthropologist? What's your what's your title here? Yeah, it kind of depends on who I'm talking to. I <laughs> <laughs> so because I'm an archaeologist, probably top like that's probably category one is archaeologist, um, also anthropologist, also art historian. <laughs> All right, a seat at the table. We got three different disciplines yeah, in, uh, in one chats. person. Yes, yeah. good. Okay, yeah. so so if we could talk about that, how you come to analyze antiquity, and and I really want to talk about this thing that you and I, I think, are both going to really um, jump up about the the kind of issues that we have when people um, take modern day psychology, art, history perspective, and project that onto antiquity to validate a a current perspective. I want to go down that thread as much as possible, but you and I have a lot to explore. So would you just let people know where you're coming from first, and then we'll kind of figure out where we go from there. Sure. Thanks. So yeah, like I said, I guess my, I would call myself first and foremost, an archaeologist. So I study the ancient world through the perspective of archaeology. Um, so that's material culture, right? So that is the stuff that people leave behind, as opposed to a historian or a classicist who might be reading texts. Um, I'm looking at the garbage, <laughs> right? Um, that people people left behind. That's not to say I don't, I'm not interested in the texts because I am, but there's only so much any one person can do. Right. So I'm, that's not my focus. Mm. Um, And then within that, and, and (laughs) my husband's also an art historian and I know he loves it when I characterize art history this way. I see art history as this like very, very small subset of archeology. span So it's, it's Mm. the visually interesting stuff that people make. So when I'm looking at the material remains of the past, I'm particularly interested in in the really visually rich material. So that's kind of where the art history comes in. Yeah, and and my area of specialty is is Mesopotamia. Um, So I'm, I'm not a classicist. Well, uh, so put some boundaries on that for people. Mm-hmm. Like, let's talk about Mesopotamia. And there are even nuances in what you're saying, because I want to find out if when you say art history, what comes to my mind is what you're meaning. And okay. So, so what so, comes to your mind? <laughs> I mean, 
I, I'm kind of cheating, you know, because I, I read some of your book and I, I'm art, I think, was a different medium. It, it, it had a different meaning tendrils to it, I think, when we when it, we look at antiquity. And this is, again, my naive or uh, amateurish perspective. I, I don't think when we say art, like an art gallery or art today, it, it's the same thing as art then. And, yes. and so that's what I want to find. You're my, getting an A in my class already. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's like that that's yes. lesson number one of the semester can you write that down so i can put it on my wall yeah, Is that good? yeah. Okay. you, you yeah. got an a um yeah exactly so art when i say art it's always in air quotes yeah um because when as you said when we think about art today we kind of think about i mean what comes to my mind immediately is people like sipping a glass of Chardonnay while staring at something on a wall and going, oh. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not, you know, it's typically and obviously there's a million different kinds of art and million different motivations for making it. But typically today, art is sort of made to be appreciated as art, right? And when we're talking about art in the past, it's not made to hang on a wall and be appreciated as art. I'm really talking about just visual expressions that could have mm-hmm. been created for all kinds of purpose. And we look at that within the field of art history because you're using the same, you know, you're using the same skills. It's, it's visual analysis, it's close visual analysis. So whether you're looking at a contemporary painting or something from long ago, we employ these visual analysis skills to understand it. And then of course, I also throw in all of the context, the historical and archeological context. Yeah, I mean, you start dipping into like philosophy and aesthetics and the, mm-hmm. the, how that evolves. There's a, I, I wanna plant this early on because I, I think Eric Neumann is a Jungian um, fella who Jung and, and he were contemporaries, they, they interacted a lot. And um, I think that's right, <laughs> whatever. So one of the things he wrote about is the, the, the movement of the aesthetic expression from the piazzas or the, the city uh, commu- where communities would come together and they would look at, you know, in the Italian Renaissance, they're looking at uh, fountains and then churches and then sculptures and how uh, marketplaces evolved and then fashion came online and then uh, people move from having particular um, textiles and cuts of textile into having particular makers who make the clothing. And now we write that designer or maker on the outside of our clothing because it's a status symbol as opposed to something that's kind of deeply connected. So I can get a bit cynical there, but I'm, yeah. is, that, is that part of the thread that you're talking about as well? I don't know that I ever thought about it in those terms, but I think there's really interesting questions to ask there about communities versus individuals. And, you know, you think about, you think about like the ancient Greek world and the investment that they made into public places to gather and making those places beautiful, right? 
versus you know a different moment in time maybe when the investment is being made into whether it's a palace or someone's personal property right like are you community focused or are you individual focused are you elite focused or community focused i don't know if that's what you were kind of, well, that, that actually the piazza yeah. versus like the personal well that adds a really interesting thread about you can get into democracy and capitalism and all kinds of other individual that that is an interesting thread but we're at the risk of like diving deep into a <laughs> a, a new ter- that that's a fascinating thread that maybe we want to pick up on um i don't want to steer us too far off the the path here so what got you into all this let's get just a little context to who you are related to these three uh, disciplines sure i mean i think i've always been really interdisciplinary in my interests and i guess if i go back to sort of thinking about what caught my attention in college you know i had the sort of classic liberal arts education a little bit of everything and i went to a jesuit institution um which was very formative i think in my thinking about religion certainly but i was interested in in art history at that time and then we didn't actually have a lot of archaeology at um at georgetown at that time but i got into it through art history and actually through some medieval classes i was taking and i kind of just started going further and further back into time and i found the further back i went the more interested I was. So that <laughs> continues to happen, actually. <laughs> I'm sort of, I went, you know, even as, since I've got my PhD, I went from like late Neolithic to early Neolithic and I loved kind of play in the Paleolithic. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I am, I'm attracted to older time periods. I think in part because we don't have the texts. Um, and it does make it feel more like, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to sound flip, but more like a kind of playground for your mind to problem solve in, right? Because we know so little that we have to build interpretations based on really fragmentary evidence. And then it's a matter of how do we do that and still do it responsibly? like not jump to too many conclusions, but still come up with something really interesting. And I think that's, that's the part of archaeology I've always really enjoyed. And, you know, one thing about doing a dissertation or really any creative work where by the nature of creativity, it's something that wasn't really there before. And when you look at the antiquity and all these areas or disciplines of study, what does your particular discipline can contribute to the broader whole as we evolve our knowledge of antiquity and how we relate to history? Yeah, I mean, so you mean archaeology? Yeah, yeah. I mean, practically speaking, just so we can kind of help orient somebody who, um, you know, can kind of begin to get a toehold in this conversation. When you think about your perspective and your expertise, Uh What, do you, what are you bringing to the conversation, um, right, for right, example, okay. in this book and in your work? Sure. I mean, okay, so for me personally, um, I think because 
there honestly aren't a lot of people who are focused on imagery mm-hmm. from say the Neolithic period. Um, there's some, but there aren't a lot and that's because there isn't a whole lot to work with. So it's not, <laughs> it's not really a um, widely popular field. So bringing that perspective of saying, hey, we have something really visually exciting here at Gebekli Tepe, for example, or at Chatal Hayuk, and can we start to sort of analyze this in a symbolic way, analyze it in a structural way, contextually, which whatever approach we take to analyzing the, the visual material, um, I think it brings Okay, well, this could really get me off on a tangent. So slow, I, slow we'll, my we'll roll if you want to, but um, <laughs> there's <laughs> archeology span tends, as I said, it's, it's the stuff. So it tends to focus on things that are kind of material and economic, right? Because that's mm-hmm. what you find. You find evidence of what people were eating or what crops they were growing or what kinds of buildings they lived in. Um, what tools they use. This is very sort of material economic stuff. What we don't find traces of archeologically is what people were thinking about because that doesn't leave material traces. If they write it down, you know, that's, that's when the texts become very helpful. But when we're talking about situations where we don't have texts or even whole groups of people who didn't write texts, which is um, even in historical periods, Um, a large percentage of the population. Accessing what people believed, what they thought about, um, what their values were is challenging archeologically. And that's kind of the area I've always found particularly interesting and hence art, right? Because when you are looking at visual material, pictures, symbols, aesthetics, as you said, like, you're starting to see what's in people's minds, what what's important to them that that they're going to, you know, everyone has to eat at some point during the day, but you don't have to make a picture of something. So if you're doing that, you're doing it because it's it, it matters to you in some way, right? So I so my kind of interest then is getting into that upper level of um, inference and interpretation of kind of what's happening in the cognitive area. Well, that gets us squarely into one of the, <laughs> you're, you're like, <laughs> I, I'm like, I do not know if I explained that clearly at all. <laughs> you said, no, I mean, it, it gets us into looking at this issue about process because your your tradition is is looking at symbols and expressions of seemingly I mean because I immediately go to this kind of archetypal paleo symbolic aspect of uh, the ways in which we've expressed ourselves and certainly we can get quickly into language and then psychology and then like we can go all kinds of different directions but what comes up for me there that I do want to get to today is what's your process I mean how do you I'm assuming that given the the nature of interpretation, that you have to be very careful and aware of 
um, the, the, I just imagine that the academic container has provided you a lot of structures in order to not project too much into that. Or do you allow yourself to totally project into it? Because like, do we go into that now? That's the question. Let's go there now. Okay. What is your process of how you come to know what you, you know? And, uh, and then we can get to some of this book because I want to quote you in a bit. Um, okay. But yeah, talk about the process. I would say I'm really conservative in my interpretive process. You know, and it, if, if you think about a site like Gobekli Tepe, and for people who aren't interested, maybe we can put yeah, go there. You know, a link to, to, to that. But this is um, an early Neolithic archaeological site in southeast Turkey that has megalithic stone structures covered with incredible images, carvings on them. I mean, this place is just full of um, really rich imagery and architecture at a time there isn't much architecture. Like this is um, way out there. And because it's so exciting, a lot of people are interested in looking at it, right? And so in something I've written, I, I sort of lay out like, here are in one paragraph, five different ways people have interpreted the images at Gobekli Tepe, right? You could look at it, you could call it this, you could call it that, you could call it this, you could call it that. And they have good reasons for doing that. Um, I really shy away from that because I think even getting into things like archetypal ideas or our minds are really complex yeah. and we can, we can think about things, you know, a thousand different ways. So I don't want to assume that somebody who lived, you know, 12,000 years ago was thinking about the world, say in, um, terms of like male female light dark structural contrasts or something like maybe we do do that sometimes but we don't do that all the time so I don't want to impose that on their reading of the past or or I don't want to assume that a fox meant you know wily like it does to us right maybe foxes meant something entirely different to people who were living then. So I try to be, this is what I mean when I say I'm conservative, I try to be really careful about not projecting meaning into things. Instead, going, going back to what do we know? Like, what do we know about the time period? What other information do we have? So contextual information that I can use to try to understand this. And then, and this, this might interest you, um, getting into sort of cognitive science a little bit in the brain and what are cognitive universals? Like what do our minds all do? Like it, when we see the world, for example, we categorize the world into, you know, buckets of some kind, right? Yes. Because it's too much to take in. So so this is just something our brains do to process information. So are there ways that I can take these really elemental cognitive universals and use them to help me understand how people were thinking in the past? And then when do you stop and say, okay, now beyond that, <laughs> I can't say anymore because 
I don't know. So knowing kind of when I can say, hey, I think this might be happening. And then when I have to say, but beyond that, we don't know. So what I, I find myself wanting to visit with your early self and uh, what, what were the things that really blew your mind about this uh, process that you're in involving archaeology, anthropology, and art history? Well, you'll love this. <laughs> um, I think, you know, when I talk about like being in college and kind of getting interested in earlier and earlier stuff, I definitely got really interested in sort of the period around early Christianity, sort of Gnostic texts and like, where does Christianity come from and what world was that? And what did that world look like? Um, and how are people thinking and how did these ideas develop? And I think some of that was because, you know, I mentioned the Jesuits, one of the best classes I took in college was um, a class on biblical literature, which was all about how the text of the Bible came together. And just from a historical perspective, that was really fascinating to me. And that kind of drew my interest then back to that time period. So I started in graduate school, um, studying biblical archaeology and then for really various reasons about just who was available for me to work with and where I could go and excavate and stuff like that um, I moved away from from kind of the bible lands so to speak and moved um, east a bit and was working in Turkey which is northern Mesopotamia. So if you think of Mesopotamia is mostly ancient Iraq, but the northern part of it, Turkey and Syria, um, were part of the same kind of cultural interaction sphere. And at the time that I was in graduate school, Americans could not work in Iraq, um, but they could work in Turkey and Syria. So we suddenly, I mean, this is like, I'm always interested also in the history of the discipline, oh, but yeah. suddenly all this work was being done in Northern Mesopotamia, which had always been considered the hinterland in a sense, because what was really happening, first cities in the world ever in Southern Mesopotamia, Southern Iraq, that was the exciting place and the North wasn't, but suddenly we're doing all this work in the North and it turns out the Neolithic there is really interesting. So it, it, some of it was just circumstance, <clears throat> but I ended, up, I, I ended up moving geographically into that area and then moving temporarily back into earlier time periods and it really captured my attention. Well, it seems like the larger population, I mean, there are large, there are population, there, excuse me, there are conversations of this nature having that are happening in larger spaces. I mean, this is obviously something that a lot of people are looking at then. So you really kind of fell into that opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Right yeah, time, right yeah. place. Yeah, yeah. And and then within that, I mean, you know, so then archaeology, you could ask, you can ask any number of questions of the material that you excavate, right? You can ask economic questions and you can ask questions about settlement patterns and about subsistence and about tool use and architecture and the questions that have always interested me are the ones about the mind, as I said, you know, so 
that's kind of what captured my attention as a researcher. Well, I'm, I'm curious how much we can pull on this thread because you said Turkey and I thought Magi and I'm, is that a territory that you can speak to with regard to any of that? Okay. I got a couple of people I've talked to that are really interested in, in particular, Turkey, Iran, and that kind of the Magi tradition that was moving across there. No, I'd be interested, you know, to learn more, but that's not something I've, I've worked on. So religion is though. (laughs) Yeah. So what did it look like? What were people thinking then? (laughs) What were people thinking (laughs) Wait, let me yeah, let me, let me be careful. Go into divinatory mode. Yeah. Um yeah, what do you get from from with so much energy? I'm sure there's funding that's happening over there too. Like what what's happening right now during this period of time related to our current perspective and the interest in this yeah. area that you're studying? Yeah, well, I mean that's that's a great way to ask the question is sort of what's coming from our interests, right? Because that's what always happens when you study the past. You look for what you look yeah. for yourself, you know, um, <laughs> wherever you go, there you are. Yes. And um, yes. <laughs> so when we've as a as a field, when we've kind of studied the time period, when I talk about early Mesopotamia, I'm talking about <laughs> the Neolithic period and then up into kind of developing into the first cities that's been studied really as a kind of economic question Mm. right because we're as a modern society modern meaning the last you know 50 years say we're we're economically driven it's like our only value in this country isn't it is sort of capitalism um so i think it's really hard for us to get away from that and not think about things in those terms. So those are the questions, subsistence, organ trade, right? Who was trading with whom? Who had resources? It's like a big game of settlers of Catan and you trade your resources around the globe or something. So it's all about resources and economics and exchange and how those things are i mean it's true right to some extent drivers of um, societal change and innovation Mm -hmm. so that's the big overarching question and what i've really been trying to do in most of the work that i've done is say hey, now, <laughs> I think there are other things going on here. You know, so seals, for example, I work a lot on, on seals and seals are firmly in that economic category in terms of the way they are typically studied. Um, they are used as part of economic transactions at that time period. And I kind of keep saying they have some really interesting pictures on them too and they're not always used in economic transactions and there's more to it than that and we really need to think about seals differently and could we kind of stop talking about economics for just a second (laughs) and talk about you know the the myths the stories the beliefs and and you know magic like 
could these objects have have been believed to to really hold power that was right. being transferred through transactions it's just not it's not something that i think people in our culture are comfortable talking about i mean this whole topic right i mean the ecstatic experience in the ancient world book the whole reason we wrote this book is because we were kind of tired of <clears throat> getting that like you know, oh, put put on the brakes there. You're talking about you're talking about something we're not comfortable with. We're like, let's push it. Let's push it out there. Get comfortable, people. Okay, so let's just take that and go there because that that'll, um, yeah. So you're talking about a felt sense of pressure from a kind of uh, older way of thinking that's not allowing for progress um, in thinking, right? There's a there's an unconscious kind of, and sometimes conscious suppression that happens, certainly in any circle, but in academic circles. Mm -hmm. And this is a subject, ecstatic experience, alternate states of consciousness that has up until now been contained and at the at the baseline so that it doesn't even get out like it, these papers these ideas they're not even getting out to be discussed and now they are mm -hmm. uh well that's very exciting so yeah yeah why, why do you think well hang on before we go in let me read this because this this book has blown my mind again great great read and i want to start with your words and uh and use that to jump in because it was in the first um, for you, you just started off this way um sorry that is yeah that's you yeah there we go ecstasy trance soul flight these powerful and potentially transformative elements of ancient experience have long been left to the fringes of archaeological research this is due in part to our own cultural unease with the esoteric. A historiographic review reveals several key reasons why archaeologists may have shied away from this subject in the past, so on and so forth. So leading with your first three concepts or ideas in the introduction of your chapter one in this book is ecstasy, trance, and soul flight. Thank you for that. Because that's this, this is the reason why I want to get into this. I'm very interested in the psychology of religious experience and and how we make meaning in in our lives and so to to I, I think and Jeff Kripal certainly we can talk about him but because the the things we don't understand get kicked out of healthy discourse and and just because we don't morally align with them or we don't like them or they don't match our current value system I love this thing you said about uh, when you look at the past you're you look for yourself and so we have to really position this in a powerful space because these are powerful forces that exist in us, just the nature of what we're talking about. So uh, talk about that. What, what have you seen in your, in your trade? Because it sounds like these ecstatic experiences are all over the place from my perspective. But mm -hmm. that's, that's one yeah. thing I've been excited to talk to you about. Yeah. And what's, what's great is, and you know, and our book doesn't even scratch the surface and you know apologies to people who are out there saying hey why didn't you know you ask me to write a chapter in your book i work on this stuff people are working on it 
right? And they have been working on it. It's just very difficult to get those ideas into the larger discourse, right? To get other people to, to accept it and talk about it. It just keeps getting pushed aside as being sort of fringe. Um, and I came, I kind of came up against and some of the early work I was doing um, on the early Neolithic and, and on the images when I encountered um, uh, David Lewis Williams work um, on caves and, and the shamanic uh, interpretation of, of um, cave art. And I immediately saw in what he did parallels to what I was looking at from, from this, you know, from the Neolithic, which is later. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a terrific uh, sort of opening for me to understand these images and it, it all kind of made sense. It really fit. And as I said earlier, I am very conservative and careful in the way I interpret things. So while I'm proposing that kind of a model, a sort of shamanic mo model for understanding some of the, some of the um, images on, on early seals, I'm also really open to someone else coming along and saying, yeah, no, here's why not. Let's look at it this way instead. It's just a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm making my contribution to the conversation and someone else can make theirs. But coming back to your question, as I started to kind of develop my argument, I swiftly realized that there were gonna be people who weren't gonna like it because of the reasons I sort of talk about in that chapter, people who are, hey, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds too, you know, two sixties. That sounds kind of too fringe. Or um, we don't talk about shamans. That's too universalizing. There's all kinds of reasons to just say we're not going to talk about that set of things. We also don't talk about how we're basically in an alcohol cult in the United States. Can you say more? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I'm reading uh, Winkleman's book, uh, his chapter, you know, and yeah. he's looking at the ways in which we cross-culturally analyze oh, uh -huh. these the various substances that are used in cultures. And I could, you know, I could read you the description of an alcohol cult and what the politics are and the economics and the communication and the social structure. And it's like, well, yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. But, so, but, but that's something that I think is important in this conversation is that we think we've grown out of the past, but we're, we haven't. I mean, we're, we're living out all of these dynamics. And that's where I get into really a confusing place with the universal versus the particular, because there are certain patterns that are eternal in our human experience. Now, how we interpret those patterns are up for grabs, right? That we've got mm -hmm. culture, we've got identity, we've got all kinds of different things that exist there. But the nature of life, death, like birth, family, community, mm -hmm. conversation, expression, art, you know, these exist seemingly cross-culturally. So when I make the comment about an alcohol cult, I'm, I'm really kind of being tongue-in-cheek just about how we aren't conscious of the culture and the religious norms that we live in because we lack a real understanding of what religion is. And I think that's what's so powerful to, when we look back at antiquity, we can say, oh, there's these powers and forces that are a little more 
early in our evolution and we can get shreds of reflection of what it's like for us being that we're like fish in water trying to view ourselves yeah you know that was the point that i really was i wanted to make strongly in the article that we wrote um my co-editors and i for the nation this piece Uh right which is sort of the, the reaching a wider audience, which is something maybe we should talk about too. But um, I don't think it, I don't think it came across as, as, as clearly as, um, as I wanted it to in there. But the idea that like people today are dealing with a lot of stuff, right? There's a lot of anxiety. You know, this, this is your whole job. You help yeah. people deal with this, right? People are dealing with a lot. And looking to all different kinds of means to help them through that process. And I think it really is powerful to be able to look back into the most distant past and say, you know, guess what? People always needed ways to solve those problems to find community, to connect with something bigger than themselves. You know, I mean, I think we have these incredible brains that, I don't know, I'm like an amateur, I'm, I'm interested in evolution in a very amateur way, right? That's, that's my like little dip my toe in anthropology thing. But, um, you you know, what, With evolution, you get you get sometimes these unwanted byproducts, right? Like our our brains are capable of so many things, but I feel like an unwanted byproduct is like the noise, the anxiety that we know there's too much. There's too much all the time, and and we're we're social, but then you get too worried about the social, right? You need the social, <laughs> but everyone's also freaked out, especially right now, right? After the pandemic, everyone's like, people. <laughs> so trying to deal with our own brains, I think you need, you need a kind of ordering in the universe, whether you want to call that spirituality or cosmology or belief or something. And knowing that people in the past we're using some of like similar techniques, te- techniques of ecstasy, right? To, to, to try to transcend um, the noise a little bit. I, I find that a really, I find that a really reassuring idea that this is something that's universal in a sense, right? Well, the, yeah, uh, we would say in modern terms that there's a psychotherapeutic value to a kind of religio magical spiritual process that connects us with something that's beyond our uh, recognizing that we have limitations in our comprehension and our perception. We are are benefited immensely by being in relationship with something that's greater than that. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the, that's a, we could say that's a universal, right? Is that, I want to I want to let you be my teacher for a minute and you push up against know. me when I make mistakes. I I am careful about universals, yeah. but I do think that's probably in some sense a universal. Now whether that means on an individual level, no, but like generally in 
the human population across time, sure. And so am I in, <laughs> this is, I get to talk to really cool people who are experts, so I get to mine this territory. Am I fair, is, is it a fair statement for me to say that as closely as we can imagine, there are these um, eternal patterns that show up cross-culturally, and one of them is a relationship with the transcendent or some image of the transcendent spontaneously emerges in cultures across time and space through our human development. Yeah, I would be hard pressed to find an exception to that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so take from that what you want to, right? Does that mean it? people are seeking it and finding it because it's there, because there is a, a God of some, or is it a way our brains are dealing with, with themselves, with, you know, with their big braininess? Is it, um, is it something more like, you know, what, what Kripal might write about this, you know, some of um, that, that tradition of the kind of radio filter model. Yes. I think is super cool. Um, it is. Yeah. Maybe like, it's not the, my the job. Brain, the brain it's, is intent. It's, it's not yes. my job to say, um, you know, I mean, I, I really loved when I was doing the research for that chapter and I, and I found Margaret Mead because Margaret Mead is sort of, you know, classic anthropologist, like you cannot argue with Margaret Mead. And she got into, she got into the kind of paranormal a little bit yeah. and, and, and she, the, her quote was like, don't confuse study with belief. Mm -hmm. Like if people are, if people are having experiences, study them. If, if, if people are having ecstatic experiences, study them, whether we believe some belief behind it is, I mean, it's not even really, it's not the point. It's not my job. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's, it, it's someone's job, but that person would be a, you know, a religious specialist, which I, you know, I mean, a, a priest sort of person, that's their job to say what's, <laughs> what's really a, going on. All I can say is, yeah, people are, people are doing this. The behavior is, is there, the experiences are there. What it means about the universe is like totally beyond me. That's, I, I, and I like that space of uncertainty. You know, there's a book that's been on my desk for a while called The Cloud of Unknowing, and it's this mystical recognition of mystery. And what, what I can't understand is that so much of our current religion is so declarative. And I, I really struggle with that because when, the further I push into religion, the more and more I understand the, the kind of how, how mysterious that this whole thing is. And that's exciting. You know, I just mm -hmm. think it scares a lot of people to, mm -hmm. to what happens after you die. We have no idea. Like, isn't it interesting that we tend to imagine though, that there is something there and that, mm -hmm. that me not making a claim or, or even uh, stating that with a question mark is not meant to be offensive, but just to recognize that there are aspects of reality I can't possibly comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. But see, this gets into your territory because then you have these symbolic expressions of the ways in which 
human beings have worked this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Relationships, sex, alternate states of con- like birth, reproduction, you know, all eating, family, you know, these core values that are expressed and and we hurt when we don't get them. And that art on some level picks up our way of representing those mysteries. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. We, see, good. Yes. Say more. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I find also really fascinating is, I don't know, is it just the chance of archaeological preservation and discovery, but, or we have these moments, you know, I mentioned Gebekli Tepe several times, we have this sort of early Neolithic, well, you you could say Paleolithic, first of all, you have, you know, this incredible visual expression that you find in caves, not only in Europe, but elsewhere in the world. You have this early Neolithic sort of Gebekli Tepe and and related sites. (laughs) And then you have a late, middle to sort of later Neolithic, just this one site, Chatal Huyuk. There's other things too, but Chatal Huyuk is the really exciting one with just crazy stuff painted on walls. Um, but, but in between, right, things go quiet. And what's, what's happening then? Like, why, why, aren't, why aren't people carving stones full of crazy pictures and, you know, putting, you know, making masks and uh, maybe they are. I mean, that's, so, so, so that's the other thing about archaeology is you never know because maybe they were doing all these things, but they were making them out of materials that didn't stand the test of time because it's all ephemeral and we've lost it. And that's, pro- you know, that's, that's a likely answer. But still, it does seem like you have these, you know, um, gaps in that evidence and if it if it is so important (laughs) if it is a universal right um why is it so much more intense at some moments than others and does that reflect and these are the questions i find myself asking right does it reflect moments of stress in a society is it anxiety Mm -hmm. is it change you know, I read once someone's idea, sorry, I don't remember who, about Paleolithic cave art um, maybe being part of like a um, tension between the different groups of people who were living in Europe at the time, the, you know, archaic um, humans and the modern humans sort of interacting and that, that um, the stress of that interaction was behind this visual expression. That certainly works intuitively, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's that's the dangerous thing though. When when things work intuitively and then you get too too attached to an idea and it's not supported by evidence, that's fun. What I I like about what you're doing here is you you have the voice of a skeptic without falling into cynicism. You know, there's, it's almost like, in your training, you, you, you have just inborn in you this kind of like, but maybe not, you know? And so it's to keep you from getting too fixed because mm-hmm. you're, you're the investigator. And if you, if you don't go through your judo training and learn how not to like 
give in to the dark side of the force and and speak in absolutes you know that that you're so that's a real healthy narrative or a real healthy ethic for you i do want to when you were saying gaps i was ready for you to say cycles and i i notice and so with you nodding i want to look through that cuz if there is if we can look at history and see certain cycles related to culture and the interplay of the you know the economics and government then i think that's a pretty cool narrative i don't know what it does for us cuz we tend not to even look i had a friend of mine once say that when the desert storm was happening he wishes that the people in power would have read thucydides and just simply understood that this is not a new reality for us the way that we fight each other and mm-hmm. how what happens in the aftermath um yeah. but oh, yeah. but you noting that that we need to be careful is a really good reminder that I'll I'll take and hopefully internalize cuz I that's something that I when you when the intuition and you risk seeing your own face in the mirror of antiquity th- your anxiety spikes a little bit and says hang on let me pump the brakes Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the big the big questions to me are the really interesting ones, like you're saying, big cycles and ways of kind of understanding patterns. Yeah, that's that's what we all want. And then when you if you open the journal of archaeology, you're going to be like, whoa, that's not <laughs> what they're doing. Like you just spent the whole article talking about three pot shirts. You know, I mean. <laughs> It's so, even though the big questions are the interesting ones, you sort of, you have to do the granular work and it, it's really hard to, it's hard to back up the big narratives with the kind of evidence you need to, to back up the big, and and there are some, you know, the, like big history books that that do a good job of this, of creating a narrative, creating a story. And they're popular for, for that reason, because they've created, they, they found a story through human history, right? And that's really attractive to us. We love stories. I love stories. And I appreciate when scholars can do that. You know, it's what I try to do in, in I teach one survey class that's kind of, you know, caved cathedral Uh, and you have to have you have to have these stories that go through it so it's not just a you know blah big pile of of unconnected facts but at the same time those those stories I don't know how to put it but like it's challenging to make the story hold up really well to the evidence simply because there's so much variety in in human experience right when you try to make any generalization about people you're you there's always going to be a yeah but what about mm-hmm. this thing that doesn't support what you're saying well, what about this case? That doesn't support what you're saying. So I like the big stories. I like the big narratives. I think they get people interested. I think they get our minds working in really good ways. 
but you kind of need to come back to the article with the three pot shirts and say, but, you know, but, but let's look at the evidence too and really see if it supports that. So let me chart our course for a sec, because there it seems like we could probably make a couple of moves and get into talking about the immortality key and kind of what, what that narrative is framed in for people, because that's certainly a, a popular narrative. Uh, so could we talk a bit about art? Could we move into art and, 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 um, and ecstasy and ecstatic experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what you're seeing and then talk about this book related to the current kind of modernity's r- resistance to yeah. um, alternate states of consciousness and then go into the immortality key work that we were talking about. Sure. Cool. Yeah, so art and ecstatic experience, I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm still, this is something that I'm still kind of trying to understand in my own mind. Like, what is the connection? If you are making, let's just use really simple terms, making a picture in whatever sense that reflects an ecstatic experience that reflects some kind of, you know, shamanic journey, let's say. Um, is that because you just had that experience? Are you in the experience? Are you telling someone about the experience through your, um, through storytelling that involves making pictures? And, and I don't know, I think it, I think that again, that probably depends on, on the context. Like if I think about Gebekli Tepe and these buildings that have the carvings and have this sort of huge um, anthropomorphic human form structure in the middle and benches around the outside. These are community buildings and whatever spiritual experience is reflected in all of that art is being shared with the community through that art. Um, and I imagine that there's a, there's an experience that people are having together perhaps, but maybe they're also hearing about an experience that already happened. And I don't know that I'm ready to say exactly what that is. Do do you get what I'm saying? I do. What, and, and yet I'm also curious (laughs) what, what are the options, you know, like what, because the, the main question Mm -hmm. here is that I'm. I'm going through is okay. Like you turn on the radio and you're going to hear a lot of songs about broken hearts and relationships and sadness. And then you're going to hear songs about empowerment and various calls to action. And you'll hear politically motivated songs. And so I could go do a solid evaluation of, of music and kind of make certain um, inferences about why people might be producing that mm. mode of expression. Mm-hmm. So th- there, there seems to, th- I mean, this art that people are producing is trying to do what with ecstatic experience? Like, is it a calling card? Is it a tribal expression? Is it, does it mark a community? Is it related to death and one's understanding with death? Like how, how are those? Those are good options. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> you see what I'm doing? Like, I'm not going to commit. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I mean, first of all, you'd have to be looking at a specific instance to answer that question. And, you know, um, in one case, people may be focused on, on burial and on ideas of rebirth or ancestor veneration or family, I don't know, some kind of juju that, you know, moves through family lines. And so ancestors are important. So, you know, there might be something like that. In another instance, um, you might need some community cohesion and everyone's coming together because they're going to go through a process that reminds them of who they are as a group. I mean, I'm just making stuff up, but my point is like there, it can be different in every instance, I think. I just, I want to hit like a meta part of our conversation right now and just state this clearly. You are a highly trained um, expert. You have years of experience in the field. You've been teaching these ideas to young minds and old minds. Um, you have been writing about uh, and communicating with colleagues who are doing something similar. This has been a passion and a, a, a centralizing endeavor in your life where I'm sure you get you know, everything from economics to uh, general affirmation of self and everything in between from this process. Is that, is all that fair to say? Yeah, more or less. And I, and I want it to be known that I cannot pin you down on (laughs) these. So I, I, I think that's important to note, you know, that, that we're in a very, very tender period of time and there are experts all over the place. And here I am sitting with one and trying to get like, I notice my own like desires. I want you to say cycle or I want you to say, and, You're frustrated. And yes. <laughs> yes. Because I, the, and I'm just noting that, you know, there are things that, and I'm, I'm willing to consider like one of the things that I think is my own process is that I want to sit with you, for example, and think out loud and have you bump up against where I'm kind of speaking to uh, immaturely or um, where I'm misinformed. You know, I, I'm, I really want these corrections, but I don't know that a lot of people are willing to feel that. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm uncomfortable because I want some of my beliefs to be confirmed and they're not. And then I've got to challenge myself and we don't tend to like that. And so mm-hmm. I, I just think that's important to note that your expertise and you're not like doubling down on some of these interpretations, you, you're trained and you desire your ethic is to stay in a space of, you know, not, not sure. We don't know until we know. Um, and there's I, a lot of people who act like they know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so just, I just, they do. I, <laughs> <laughs> but that's like, that's a part of academia that I've never, that's a space I, I don't want to be right. I don't want everyone to go, wow. Costello found the answer. She's right. 
that like I don't care. I have uh, no academic ego, and that's probably held me back in some ways. But oh, I bet it I has. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that the the insistence on seeing something one way, I think that's that's bad academic ego at play. I think good a good academic conversation is someone who says, you know, I think it's this, and I say, cool. I don't totally agree, but I, I like that idea. Mm-hmm. I just see it more this way. And they might say, yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Or she's full of shit. I mean, I don't know, but, but, but well, she's frustrating as shit right now. That's, convers- that's what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a conversation. And right. maybe I'm trying to leave too much space and that's, what's frustrating, but I guess no, I think, I, like it. I I think maybe where we're pushing up a little bit too is our different disciplines, right? Yeah. Because you are thinking about, I I assume, the human mind in a way, right? I mean, that's what you're trained. Yeah. I mean, I want to think about healing, where we we connect with meaning, how we understand where we fit, what our identity is. What do our languages and various forms of expression reveal about things that are happening in our unconscious related to our culture and the culture that is created out of that uh, collision of all those different, like that. But I find myself really looking from a healing perspective because I'm very interested in how people are coming to understand themselves and how they fit in the cosmos. Yeah. And I, and, I think you can you can find those answers. They're, they just might not be packaged as tidily as we might want them to be because you know, I think part of part of my reluctance to settle on one particular answer is just human variability. Um, if I've learned anything, it's that, you know, people are going to interpret the same thing right. as many different ways as there are people. Um, Just come into a couple's session and look at couples <laughs> therapy happening. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that's the essence, right? Like, yes, if it is. At our it's core. Rashomon. It's yes. like, you know, everyone is going to yeah. see things differently. And that's on one level. But then build that into a society. And this, is, this society constructs you know, their package differently than the society constructs their package. And they're going to be dealing with the anxieties and finding ways to heal and uh, the different things we've been talking about in really different ways. Now, the universals, which is kind of the, what we keep mm-hmm. playing around with. Yeah, like there do seem to be these these patterns. And, you know, Winkleman's chapter in this book is amazing because I mean, he has been doing this work for decades, right? And what he's been doing is the work of an anthropologist collecting all of that varied evidence and looking for the patterns, like you're saying, and saying, look, I can, I can say that some societies have healers, some have witches, some have, you know, these um, different sort of types of, of, religious specialists say, um, 
And these are the patterns. And he, so he is like, he's finding those patterns by doing the kind of work that I'm comfortable with, which is look at all the details. Um, don't make an assumption. You know, even if it feels intuitive, I want to see the evidence. And he's kind of brought the receipts um, through his work. It's a great so, changer. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be reaching out to him. Yeah, he's and, and he, he's just an amazing person too. Yeah. Well, so let's take that opportunity and go there because um, I'm curious how you got this book together and what your selection process, because we haven't really even been deep into what's happening in this book. I mean, you're really doing sure. an overview of, of mm -hmm. these ideas that we're just lightly touching on so far. So take that and run with Okay, it. yeah, so um, it kind of started with conversations between me, sorry, <laughs> my printer just decided to start demanding attention. <laughs> um, I don't know what's going on over there, but I'm gonna ignore it. So. My co-editor, Diana Stein, and I were doing kind of similar work. We didn't know each other, but we kept finding we were looking at seals and looking at this type of imagery and kind of coming to the, some of the same conclusions. And I was like, hey, Diana, <laughs> you seem like you're doing some of these things that I'm doing. And she's like, yeah, well, let's, let's talk about a project. And I really give her... So much of the credit because she was um, she was the energy behind this in a lot of ways. So she, and then she brought in Karen Foster, um, who's worked on on this in the Aegean area, you know, Minoans and um, in, in particular. And between the three of us and our different professional networks, we started reaching out to mm -hmm. people who we knew were working, and and, and what we wanted was a, a, a wide range. We wanted to show, I mean, in a sense, our project was to show that ecstatic experience really is everywhere. And if you look at the Hittite world, you're gonna find something. If you look at Mesopotamia, you're gonna find something. If you look at Egypt, you're gonna find something. Minoans, you know, a lot of people have worked on, but what about Mycenaeans? Um, so, we were doing this kind of by just talking to a lot of people and and trying to, in some cases, push them a little bit and say, well, couldn't you though? Don't you want, don't you maybe want to ask this question about, you know, the Mycenaeans? Like, isn't there something that you would want to say about this? Is there ecstatic experience there? And in other cases, there was no pushing required. They were like, yeah, I've been doing this for 30 years already after <laughs> for you. Um, so we also wanted to get a range, not just geographically, like I was just saying, but how do you find the evidence? So what we call archeological correlates, right? Mm -hmm. This is, this is a set of behaviors and things, as I was saying earlier, that happen in your mind. How, how do we find traces of that materially so let's get some archaeobotanists you know mm -hmm. and um and let's talk to people who know the texts inside out and what evidence is there in the texts and let's 
get people who look at art and let's get people who, you know, so really trying to get the different types of evidence so that somebody who wants to understand ecstatic experience in the ancient world better could look through this book and say, oh, I see. So a scientist could look at traces of, you know, um, in, in vessels or something and find traces of, um, of the actual uh, materials people were ingesting, or somebody could look at the art and, 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 and you get a sense of the different sort of paths you could take to find evidence of ecstatic experience. And in some cases it's, you know, it's slim and you might say, okay, I can see that this, I don't know, text is talking about a ritual that seems to point to an ecstatic experience. Is it a smoking gun? Not exactly, but it's a clue. It's, it gives us the sense that, yeah, this was part of their world. Like cannabis on the altar? Well, that's a smoking gun. <laughs> that's, pretty... that's a pretty good one, yeah. <laughs> Right. We need more of that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I heard there there aren't reviews out yet because the book is still new. So I'm I'm interested in what the reviews will look like. But I I heard that somebody um, who's in uh, the area of Mesopotamia in particular looked at the book and said, yeah, very interesting book. But I'm not I'm not sold on the Mesopotamia part. I don't think. I don't think they did this, which is hilarious to me that someone's take would be, okay, it's basically universal, but not in Mesopotamia, like not my ancient people. Right. They weren't doing it, right? No, 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 no. We, it, it was much more, it was much more proper and structured than that or something. Yeah, people, you know? it should be noted, people, we were mentioning Carl Ruck or Amon Hillman. These are people who have made these claims about drugs in antiquity or entheogens, however we're going to, and they get axed and it's a struggle. You know, if you're trying to make this claim in the seventies, mm -hmm. uh -oh, you know, and, and right now it's of course different, but, but yeah, it's really interesting that we, we find that to be heretical and, and mm -hmm. kick it out of the, the canon. And it comes back to that kind of seeing yourself in the past. I think sometimes when we look at certain ancient societies, Greeks, Romans, Mesopotamians, there are things that look so familiar to us that I do think some scholars look at the past and imagine it's like today, but with togas or something. And <laughs> when they come across evidence that shows that like, oh no, some, something that would look super weird to us was actually going on it's uncomfortable and they don't really like that. Now there are plenty of other people who love that, who are like, oh, the past was super weird. Let's read more. Um, but I, yeah, do, <laughs> I do think that sometimes people don't, don't like this. I mean, you know, it's just like today. Some people are accepting of, you know, eccentricity or behavior that seems deviant to them and other people really aren't. So. A lot of it seems to do with sex. Yeah, often. Yeah. yeah. And again, that's like who we are as a society, right? Yeah. Consistently repressing on some level, tr yeah. trying to eradicate 
they yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I i think it's convenient that people look back on antiquity and they just kind of glance over the orgy scenes that happened and they they go no that that wasn't involved in religion of course not but you know it happened it happened in antiquity too and i'm getting out of my area of expertise so um but what you know, you have the Greeks and then their neighbors in Italy were the Etruscans. Mm -hmm. um, and the Etruscans were into some kind of neat, um, neat stuff. They were into divination and magic. And, um, but the Greeks didn't really understand them and sometimes really misinterpreted. So, and I can't back this up, but this is just something that I've read that they, had the same kinds of drinking parties, right? These symposia that the Greeks had, but it, the Greeks, only men were involved unless they were there for sex because women didn't take part in that mm -hmm. part in any really public role in society except religion. So women didn't get to go to the dinner parties. Um, nice women, right? Um, as, as, as we might say, but in, for the Etruscans, they did you know, you would go with your wife, just like today you would, right? You're going to go out for the evening, you go with your partner. Um, and then evidently the Greeks saw this and just misunderstood completely and thought Etruscan women must be like essentially whores, that, that these women were sleeping around because why would they be at a, at a symposium if they weren't, weren't there to provide sex? Classic slut shaming from yeah, social understanding. Yeah. And also just cultural yeah. misunderstanding, yeah. right? That yeah. happens all the time today, but it happened back then. And when we look at the past, we do it. It's just we have such a hard time looking outside of yeah. our our own. That was a very long example, but you can edit that out if you wish. But no, you know, actually, the more it, those stories come out, I like that. I really like <laughs> those threads because yeah. it, it grounds it. You know, I, I don't. And it's also like a member, you said it's like a playground. And for me, I, I really do like hearing people who have been mining these territories speak, just free associate with what comes up. Thank you for that. Uh, so where does that take us? Because we're sitting in a place looking at antiquity, um, ecstatic. Ex oh, yeah. You know what? I want to define a couple of terms, because would you would you define what you mean when you say ecstatic experience and what you think um, religion was at the time um, and if that's an appropriate way to, to yeah no it. that's a really good question um i don't i'll probably frustrate you by not answering directly um <laughs> we know this is going to happen already <laughs> terminology terminology is tricky in this area yeah. um you know there's kind of a, a history in the discipline anthropology archaeology of trying to box things in a little bit so that religion only applies to say an organized religion with you know I don't know these three characteristics and if not we're not talking about religion we're talking about something else ritual or belief or you know so I don't really like that um I think that those are not really helpful divisions i think that they're they're ethnocentric and um mm -hmm. hierarchical and judgmental potentially can really be misused 
so for me, when I say religion, I really am talking about something spiritual, something in which people people are are engaged with the spiritual. And what's also really worth keeping in mind is that again today we put these things in boxes so that you do your religion on Friday or Saturday or Sunday and then other days you're doing your mundane things or you have a prayer before a meal and then you're done with the religion right so often it's it's in these very um you know discreet packages and it really seems that in much of the ancient world um, it was it was just you know all mixed in together. I mean, so is it superstition or is it religion? You know, if like you don't step on a sidewalk crack today, um, or you don't walk under a ladder, it's we call it superstition. But those kinds of of small behaviors might have been really woven into people's lives. Um, and I wouldn't want to take all of that and just put it into some, you know, little box and call it superstition as though it's not important. I think that that was part of religion as well, in the sense that that's the way people were seeing the bigger forces in the world. Mm -hmm. So I like religion as a really encompassing term. I do too. Uh, people, Thomas More, when I talked to him years ago, a couple of years back, he he had a book called um, Your Own Religion or something. And he said he said he regretted including religion in the title because the the publisher urged him not to but apparently people have a lot of associations with the word religion i just love it so much and think that i mean it in the way that we're talking about it right now yeah. to to reconnect with something that's seemingly outside of my um perceptual limitations uh, my comprehension yeah. uh yeah. we use language in really limiting ways right i mean we use it to to put things, I don't know, like magic even, um, we do the same thing, right? Magic is silly and it's, it's, it's these things, but maybe magic is a lot more than that. Well, and you're actually hitting on something important that, that <laughs> not to be too productive uh, here, but the act of having ecstasy in your religious tradition sets you up to make being in the unknown a core value of your life experience. Mm -hmm. Tracking so far, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about a holistic model of, of human experience, then I think on a basic level, and this is where my psychologist hat comes out, on a basic level, when people have uh, they have not had reductive conclusions that they believe are right, you know. So that that's a harmful, toxic pattern. That right. when I when I have when I conclude that I understand reality and I'm correct, and you act in this way and not that way, that's toxic and harmful. So, in a communal social space, to have some kind of principle that connects each individual with the reminder and the repetitive ritualization of ecstasy where I, to use psychological terminology, the ego gets kind of mm -hmm. kicked out of the driver's seat. And, and, and back to this, this, this categoricalization of, 
maybe that's a word to, to the, 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 the impulse or the, the instinct to categorize is uh, taken out for the moment. And so I'm communing or whatever word you want to use. So that seems to be a value. Now here, modern day, we have a real twisted relationship. Earlier, I made a, co- a comment about an alcohol cult. Um, that's not contained in a kind of religious tradition. It's seeped out. And so now mm-hmm. it's real, to- it's toxic that even, so this reminds me of that uh, one participant reminded, Almond Hillman reminded me that Paul walks around and says, you guys are using this, you guys are doing wrong. You know, you're, you're not using the sacrament in the way it's intended to be used. One could say that when alcohol goes out of the religious tradition, we've got people using alcohol to just, relax, you know, at the end of a day, mm-hmm. as opposed to having a religiously minded culture that puts somebody into relationship with ecstasy and productivity and community and family and support and models of uh, connection and collaboration and also models of um, contemplation and individual spiritual work, right? That seems like that's a holistic model of a human and yeah. Yeah, no, I like okay. that. I do. I think that that makes a lot of sense. You know, and I actually I like that a lot about Morescu's book is that he 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 set up that sort of model of saying, look, it was there and it was removed and we've been left with something that's not that's that's sort of dry, right? The dry cracker of of mm-hmm. of religion in a way. And I think that pointing out pointing it out as in a, in a way where its absence is what's notable rather than its presence um, hmm. it's, is a, it's a really powerful way of kind of shifting your, your paradigm. And I think that's what you're saying too, right? I am. Yeah. I like that a lot. And, and, you know, of course it's even worse in our society because then we like add on shame Oh, yeah. um and that's not healthy <laughs> well you end up you end up being a a human being who needs to this is so i got to be careful here but i do think we, I, I do think we need to get we have a meta experience of ourselves i think there is a kind of urge to self reflect talking about one of those eternal patterns so we have to be able to look seemingly down upon ourselves and pay attention to what's happening and make certain course corrections to our process based upon our instincts and our culture and our nature and our identity and our experience and our history and mm-hmm. and 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 navigating all that territory I'm not only having conflicts with people out there I'm having conflicts in here all the time and and so to have a kind of soul tending process in the culture at large in order to provide that expansiveness and um, moments away from the 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 kind of orient the 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 orienting factors of the ego which are always going to be categorizing and evaluating and projecting into the future and planning and kind of worst case scenarioing ing mm-hmm, and, and that's mm-hmm. got to just shut the fuck up every now and then and like let me connect with something beyond this chaos that seemingly 
is imaged by the Buddhists as a monkey mind that's swinging from all these branches. And you're like, Jesus, how can I? I know. Let me have a really healthy place that I can go make sense of the world, which means to be in no sense, to be um, in no cis, you know, and, and I run the risk of romanticizing antiquity when I imagine that like some dude who's gone into a cave for 10 days and fasted and I'm sure is malnourished and miserable and has a vision and I'm like, oh shit, yeah, I need to go to the dark retreat in Tibetan. So that I do, yeah. I like this thread and that we're talking about how, what's the problem when there's not this that's present. And part of what happens is it gets absorbed into social social dynamics that um, reify that behavior, alcohol I'm talking about primarily, and taking it out of the spiritual context. And I mean, not just alcohol, right? But, but drugs as well. Yeah. And this is, you know, a concern that I have I am encouraged by seeing so much really interesting new research on psychedelics, for example, that's happening. Um, And I think we, you know, we need, we need to explore um, the therapeutic potential. I'm worried about opening the floodgates and creating the kind of thing you're talking about with alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the, 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 you know, 18 year old who, who wants to experiment um, that's been happening always. Right. And right. how often does that yield the kind of truly mind opening, expansive healing experience that we're talking about i don't know i'm pretty square and didn't go there myself I but was i'm not. saying like i <laughs> just i don't think that that i think you're 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 probably more often in the like binge drinking kind of um category I don't know. well so not that i'm trying to make a moral claim here but I, there is as i as i'm thinking through these kinds of issues i tend to think well well, the culture is real. Like we didn't create the, the culture's right. not there to create the container. Right. This is Jeff Kripal's whole entire, like, wow, it's whatever kind of um, representations we currently have of a, a phenomena, of a given phenomena. If something activates that's outside of that model, we just, it goes out into all these weird places. And I think for people like us, it's like, well, I want to look at all those weird places and Freud was doing it. Jung was doing it. it uh, philosophers have done it. They're talking about taboos. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly sexuality is on that list. Violence is on that list. Uh, alternate states of consciousness are on that list. And that's where these private communities started to develop. I imagine uh, that's just how I would have done it, is that I would have said, wow, this is really radical, except those people over there are going to judge me for doing this. So I'm going into a cave and then I'm going to venture into the cave one day and see you sitting in the cave and go, oh shit, mm-hmm. we, we, we're we on this same thread, you know? And then we have a community that develops that's on that same thread. And, and so that, I just think that there's something very important about, to, to I think to, uh, to mirror this again, 
about us not having um, our religions right now are uh, are anti alternate states of consciousness. They're anti expressions of ecstasy, and and that includes the body and sexuality. And you know, you can't talk about orgasm. You know, like, I, and I do this with with families where I, we say, "Oh my God!" Like, you haven't talked to your kids about sex. You know, that's not the the the, the data is that's not going to help them. It in fact hurts them. And mm-hmm. so to normalize uh, uh, the ways in which we seek out alternate states of consciousness, or they spontaneously emerge and allow us to talk openly about them, um, the fact that we not only don't have that, and then we feel ashamed for not for 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 even thinking about that is pretty powerful today. So that's why I look at antiquity. I'm like, these folks got something that- I know, we all do it. We all romanticize (laughs) it. It's, it's, but it's part of the fun, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, oh, I want so badly a time machine. I really, really- (laughs) What, what would you do? Where would you- where would you go if you had that? Can what would what would be the the thing you if you got one trip? I mean, I'd probably have to go to the Neolithic because I've spent so much time thinking about it. Um, the Neolithic, as though it's like one moment. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I just, yeah. It would what do be- you think? We're we're uh, newly nomadic tribes going after big game and eating mushrooms off their shit and having <laughs> alternate states of consciousness in the, like, this is where we're going now. I guess, I mean, this has all kind of come full, full circle um, in the sense that like, there's always gonna be some kind of a structure for it, I think, right? Mm-hmm. In most cases. And I think that's what we're seeing back in the Paleolithic, in the Neolithic. I, I think even in these early moments, structures are created to contain, if you wanna say contain, or maybe you could say nurture if you wanted to use a different word, but um, to create a space for that to happen, that it's not necessarily just um, random, but it's being used to amplify desired outcome of the group. I'm really, I see this is when I start sounding like an <laughs> anthropologist or sociologist. Yeah, it's so reductive. Again, yeah, yeah, I do that shit all the time. It's like, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's um, it's not like a free for all, I guess is yeah. what I'm saying. And it never was. Like it was always ecstatic experience is sort of what I mean, but always probably, why no, but part of a structured and somewhat controlled set of behaviors. And I think what's what's interesting is seeing how those structures and controls change in different moments. And when you have a more hierarchical society, you know, who's controlling it and who has access to it, not everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Versus mm-hmm. a different situation where maybe more people have access to it. Someone's still probably in some sense, controlling it, you need to have a specialist, you need to have a guide, you need to have people who are um, keeping everyone else on the rails. And uh, I think I am just speculating now. It's, but that, 
to me, we have to be on the verge of something to be creative. I mean, that's that's one thing about walking that line between, yeah, we've got our processes, we've got our our biases, we've got our ethics that we operate by, and I'm also going to have to play play on the playground of what if and maybes and could it be's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, but to remember to balance oneself by what what we know and to have a place for that, to be able to go into dream world about, you know, it, it is very interesting to contemplate where we in our human growth and development, what was lost, because this happens in one's personal life. I find that people that I work with in their second halves of life, we, we all tend to be oriented to picking up the threads that were dropped in our earlier lives to take a more mature a more mature understanding or go at what we had to drop off. This is why I've got 60 year olds who are like, I want to get a pottery wheel or I want to start smoking pot or I want to, um, you know, finally go on that trip. You know, there's, I want to give expression for the things that I had to drop. And Mm -hmm. so I'm wondering, is that a fractal? Is that something that we can look at and say, well, there's a microcosm in my lived experience that might be an amplification of what happens in a universal pattern to other people as well. And so can I look at things like marital conflict and my own identity formation and what's happening in the later stages of my life and make certain inferences based upon that into what we do, we collectively do, owning that I'm gonna get something wrong because it's not just, I can't just map Mm one-to-one, but it's certainly a decent heuristic to say that probably happens. Yeah, definitely. And I think thinking about that, uh, you know, the way you just said it, uh, you know, a, a useful heuristic, like that's kind of what we're doing in all of this, right? It's like, you know, let's let's use this model to try to understand. Let's see where that takes us. Oh, I learned yeah. something, right? Does that mean that that is the single correct model and way to understand the world no but that was helpful and now let's try this one and let's think about it this way and um yeah and anything we can use to try to kind of get a better a better perspective and a better understanding and that's what that's what you're doing in archaeology i mean ultimately yeah it's fun to learn about the ancient world maybe we're all just trying to understand ourselves better by doing that, right, um, in some sense. So yeah, I and mean, this gets weird. This gets into like the paranormal of timelessness and what is time. And if I, you know, find some book that's giving the answer to what I've been searching for, that there's magic in that. And and the I, I love what you're saying to reflect a a fellow I recently spoke with, Bernardo Castreff, who's somebody who's been very helpful in these territories, he calls them convenient fictions. Mm. And he says that, you know, that we're consistently, everything from our understanding of medicine to psychology to what environment and sciences, they're all convenient fictions. And we know in academia, you know, what is innovation is met with, uh, harsh consequences oftentimes it's it's not necessarily met with um open arms Mm -hmm. you know even back to what you're saying 
we can't really talk about alternate states of consciousness because people go, oh, no, no, that, that wasn't happening. And so finally, you've got the fire up underneath you and you're putting out this book on alternate states of consciousness and ecstatic experience. And I, to me, it's, it's, it's exactly what I needed in this thread. As I told you earlier, I'm your perfect patient. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm so stoked to read this book. I'm, I'm tearing through it because part of what, uh, you know, when I talked to Brian Marescu and uh, life started to open up in ways that were pretty magical because I realized like I'm covered up by all these books that are pointing toward this area uh, mm -hmm. that you're researching. And so there's something really wild that's happening right now. So on that thread, though, about uh, Brian's work, what'd you think about when you read it? Uh, um, I, I love it. Um, in a lot of ways, that was kind of my initial response was like, oh, this is awesome. Right. And then there, the part of me that's an academic was like, oh, I don't really like what he did with this area or, you know, oh, I'm not comfortable with that conclusion. So, of course, I mean, that's how I read. I'm a critical reader. Right. right. It's, it's kind of my job. Um, so, yeah, I definitely ran up against some of those places where like the narrative uh, doesn't hold in my view but I like the narrative. And that's sort of what I was saying earlier about stories. And um, in a sense, it's about who you're trying to reach and how you're trying to reach them. We need, I, I mean, nobody's gonna just, maybe except you, is gonna pick up ecstatic experience in the ancient world who isn't an archeologist who, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's we really now I will say we tried very hard. We did an enormous amount of editorial labor on this book to make it a readable book. To make it it's something very readable. I I I'll push up against that. I don't think it's an inside baseball book. I think there's ample opportunity for people involved in these questions. That like if if anybody's been watching or listening to the podcast, this is your book. Like the but, but, but that's not what I meant. Like, I agree with you. I want anyone who's interested in those questions to read this book. But what I'm saying is if you weren't already interested, <laughs> okay, you. you might not, this isn't going to be on the New York times bestsellers list. Like Brian's this, book. this thing, this, <laughs> this beast. <laughs> right. Because, you know, someone who isn't already interested in the subject yeah. isn't going to just pick this up and like it's not and find it to be a page turner because it's it's the evidence right it's like i said mm -hmm. winkleman's bringing the receipts it's kind of like the receipts <laughs> for brian's book brian is telling this story that is captivating and and which i think is hopefully getting people really interested right. and i hope it brings them to our book right but that's the power of what he's doing is he's he's telling a story. I mean, he has incredible skill in making it exciting and, and making sense of a lot of different moments in time and bits of evidence and kind of weaving it into a big story. And I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. I, you know, as I said, I don't love some of the, some of the leaps, um, some of the ways the dots are connected, um, don't connect to me, but but I, I like it conceptually, and, and, and I think it's a really exciting book. I imagine it's really, I mean, I know it'd be very hard to be the expert of a lot of disciplines. You know, so when we write books, we got to try to mine from all the people that can talk about that are the experts. Yeah. 
So I, in the spirit of time, I'm aware that um, we need to start wrapping up. Sure. Um, but there's so much more here, Sarah. This is, um, I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these ideas because it seems like one of the places we're landing is, is the, the, the what, what's not there. And, and it's not that, maybe it has, maybe that is decent, that we've lost something a container for ecstatic experience and but it doesn't go away it goes into very hidden places or mm -hmm. seeps mm -hmm. into the culture at large and finds little shadowy ways to express itself and usually this this phrase dates me but sex drugs and rock and roll all contain these ecstatic um aspects of our experience, which is why a rock concert can be a very, you know, on some level, a deeply religious experience. Mm. So, uh, just closing out, what uh, what threads are left hanging? Uh, what what needs to be included in our our recipe here? Well, I hope that people will take a look at the book in the sense that I think they're going to find we just cover so much ground you know as i said geographically methodologically in terms of the different types of evidence i think there's something new for people to discover there and i'm also really hoping that like some of the people who are maybe in my field who haven't before been comfortable thinking about this aspect of of human behavior will find this to be a comfortable place <laughs> to start thinking about it. You know, we are, we're staying within the bounds of good archeological evidence. We're, you know, we've got all the, all the footnotes. It's, um, it's good research by good scholars. And I hope this pushes the field forward a little bit and, mm -hmm. and makes it easier for our disciplines to get into some, I mean, I feel like the questions we were talking about today, John, are just so interesting and so elemental to who we are as people. And I want to have those conversations about people in the ancient world too, mm -hmm. you know, and, and let that be a part of what we're talking about when we look at the ancient world. Yeah. I think, I think any spiritual tradition that's worth any time and attention has a kind of lineage in it. It's either going to be the lineage of the plants and plant teachers or the lineage of academia, but having a kind of lineage to locate oneself is important. And if, if a large part of our human experience, the kind of the nature of the transcendent isn't if we've already made conclusions about that, then we're not in relationship with mystery. So I, that's one of the major takeaways that I'm, I'm really uh, leaving with today. And I, I, I really appreciate this time and energy. And I'm, I've basically got your list of contributors as a podcast participant list. Um, <laughs> Y'all did such a good job on this book. And I, in the intro, I will have read through some of the selections in the table of contents. So yeah, if you're thinking about it, it's a it's a beast of a book, but it's not a necessarily a cover to cover read. It's a mine through it and use it for a long, long time because it's we'll be looking at this book for a while. Um, anything else you want to direct people anywhere? 
No. Good. No. I'll, I'll do all the directing. Okay. Um, well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. And this is a helpful dive into some territory that I'm just beginning to uh, get deeper and deeper into. So thank you. Well, thanks. Thanks for, you know, uh, having the conversation with me and thanks for making this space more generally for this kind of conversation to happen. I think you're doing great work here. Thanks. I, and just, yeah, one note <clears throat> that I think is important is is that there's something, and this is a kind of Freudian-Jungian split, where our medicine and medical, what we medicalize, because ecstatic experience is medicalized in some way right now. It's problematic. Mm -hmm. It's psychotic or it's to be avoided. And, um, and I think that's one of our problems today is that we don't, we have so much anxiety about uncertainty that we don't create a habit of being in uncertain spaces. So public service announcement. Uh, <laughs> thanks again. Give me, give me one sec and we'll, uh, we'll chat for a second. So much appreciated, Sarah.